You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you seem somber uh, this evening, so I'm going to begin with a story from the very memorable movie, Talladega Nights. Uh, As Ricky Bobby is praying, I believe it's for a Thanksgiving meal, in fact, he prays, dear Lord baby Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. He goes on to thank the Lord for his kids and for his wife in a very explicit way, and thanks uh, the Lord for his friend And as he's praying, he keeps addressing God as tiny baby Jesus, eight pounds, six ounce, tiny infant Jesus, baby Jesus. And his wife interrupts him in the middle of prayer and says, hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. And uh, you don't always have to call him baby. It's a little bit odd and off-putting. I love that. A little bit off-putting to pray to a baby. And Ricky responds, still in the middle of the prayer, I love this, and he says, well, look, I like Christmas Jesus best when I'm saying grace. And when you're saying grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. Whoever you want. Now, we, we may not be as absurd as Ricky Bobby and his prayer, but I actually think that this reflects many of our sentiments that we naturally have about Jesus, especially around the Christmas season. He is a cute, cuddly infant wrapped in swaddling cloths, one that is safe, one that is small, and there he remains neatly in the manger until next year. We pull him out, and there he is, still a baby. And a baby Jesus that fits neatly into a manger, guess what? He can also fit neatly into our lives as a nice little addition to what we've got going on. Is that the Jesus that you celebrate this Advent? Is it the Jesus that is safe and small? You see, the story of Jesus does not begin in a stable in Bethlehem. Long before the shepherds witnessed Jesus lying in a manger, Isaiah saw the eternal Jesus seated on the throne of heaven. 
In fact, the apostle John, the writer of the gospel, John, in John chapter 12, would clarify that this breathtaking vision that we just read, that Isaiah receives, isn't just of God in general, like some big, divine, ambiguous, heavenly being, but that Isaiah saw Jesus. Jesus crowned in glory. Jesus shaking the heavens. Jesus causing fierce angels to tremble in his presence. Appreciating the incarnation story of Christmas requires that we step back for a moment And behold the heights from which Jesus came and descended to come dwell with humanity. What he left to be born. And what he returned to in his ascension. And so as we behold him this Advent, and that is the theme that will frame our Advent, behold him. We will be looking through the prophetic eyes of the Old Testament writer Isaiah. Who wrote of this coming Messiah hundreds of years before his appearance. And we'll catch our first glimpse from the vision that we see here in chapter 6. And where I want to begin, if you're taking notes, is this. A vision of gloom. And I think that that's the right place to begin the Advent season. Because as Fleming Rutledge put it, Advent begins in the dark. If she walked into our sanctuary and saw all these Christmas lights, she would probably have a heart attack. Because Advent begins in the dark. She goes on to say, Advent is the season that when properly understood does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in this world. Advent begins in the dark and then moves towards the light, but the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. Advent bids us to take a fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. What's Isaiah doing? Isaiah is doing, he's he's taking a fearless inventory of the darkness without and the darkness within. In fact, there's something to the fact that before he sees God, before he sees this vision of the Lord high and lifted up, all he sees is darkness. The prior chapter that ends and then comes right into chapter six ends with uh, with this line, And if one looks to the land, behold, what? Darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. That's the note that then begins this vision. And the order is important because it is precisely when the darkness is all that we see that the light of Christ then breaks in. It's when darkness is all that we can see that the light of heaven appears, not before. Perhaps we have not experienced our revelation of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we have not experienced our vision of Jesus like Isaiah experiences because we have been unwilling or we have been too impatient or we have simply been too afraid to stare into the darkness of our own experience. This is where it's found. Children are not the only ones that are afraid of the dark. Children are the only ones that are honest enough to admit it. Kids demand nightlights. We as adults cope with our fears with screens and entertainment and vices and bodies 
or anything else that will get our minds off of what is wrong with us and wrong with the world. We're frightened as well, maybe more so. Isaiah continues, in the year, verse one, King Uzziah died. Now that will probably mean very little to us. We'll probably treat that statement as a sort of historic mile marker. We open up our concordance or we open up our commentary and we scroll and we see, okay, the year that King Uzziah died, that was 740 BC, got it. But to the ancient Hebrew audience, this was so much more. To to, to Isaiah and to the, the kingdom of Judah, this was another way of saying, in the year, all our hope was lost. This was the king that secured the nation's freedom and safety. And under this king's reign, God's people had prospered. And in this long line of like jacked up kings that continued to lead God's people in wayward directions, his leadership for once was promising. And now he's dead. And all their hopes with him. What we can gather from this is it's only when all hope is lost that real hope appears. It's not a coincidence that it's the same year that King Uzziah died, the human king died, that Isaiah finally saw the true heavenly king. Put those ideas together in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, the king, the true king. It's almost as if The human king had to die before he saw the true king. So what's your king, Uzziah? Maybe it's the year my dreams died. Maybe it's the year my finances died. Maybe it's the year my job died. Maybe it's the year that that important relationship died. Maybe it's the year that my health died. Maybe it's the year that that loved one died. Maybe it's the year that it felt like your faith died. But you see, it's only when all human possibilities die that real hope is birthed. You only have the capacity to cling to one thing, human hope or heavenly hope. The question for us this evening is which is it? Human hope or heavenly hope? And if you're like many who over the course of the last couple years have just come to the end of yourself and have come to the end of your circumstances and you're finally, finally, finally ready to admit that this whole thing is just broken beyond repair and that the same old worn out approaches to life are just not working and they're failing you. You're experiencing letdown. You've experienced disappointment. You're on the brink of despair. I'm here to tell you, you're actually in a really good place. And you're in good company, darkness and all. Because you, like Isaiah, are primed for a vision of glory. Let's look secondly at a vision of glory. Look with me again in verses one through four. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled The temple, now envision this. Isaiah is stirring our imagination. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. 
And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. When I was a little boy, my grandfather would take my brother and I out to the very end of the runway of the Air Force Base that he was stationed at younger, when he was younger. And there was this road called Kiefer Boulevard that dead-ended dead right into the end of the airstrip. And before the Air Force Base was decommissioned, they would fly these amazing airplanes and jets out of their B-52 bombers, F-16s, like amazing planes, amazing jets. And we would be there, right there, parked at the very end of the runway. And as they came off that runway and lifted up, it was like so close you could reach out and touch. And as those planes went overhead and those afterburners fired up, it, was, it would like shake us to our core. And as I was looking at this passage, that's the closest thing that I can imagine to what Isaiah experiences in the presence of God, this awe-inspiring power that shakes him to his core. Isaiah says that the Lord spoke and his voice literally shakes the foundations of the temple. Imagine the pillars and the columns of this church right here just shaking at the voice of the Lord. So think about it this way. Again, as we're sort of undermining some of our Christmas sentiments, that long before Jesus was cooing in a manger, he was shaking the walls of the temple with the thunderclap of his voice. So Isaiah is worshiping in the temple one day. And I don't think that we should overlook that point. He saw the Lord because he was seeking the Lord. He got a vision of the glory of God because he kept showing up in his season of darkness. He kept pressing into the Lord when he was not experiencing him, when he wasn't seeing that vision, when he was feeling that despair, he continued to seek the Lord. And by God's grace, on this day, his vision was lifted beyond the familiar, beyond the mundane, to behold the glory and the majesty of God. And what he sees is the Lord seated upon the throne. Now, isn't that an amazing contrast here? That although the earthly king is now dead and he's buried in the ground, the true sovereign king is still reigning. King Uzziah is dead buried. Christ is reigning. And the same is true today, whether it's 740 BC or 2021 AD. Christ is reigning. Christ is alive. Christ is exalted. Christ is majestic. Christ is powerful. It says the train of his robe filled the temple. I want you to envision that. The train of his robe, the fringe of his garment fills the temple. So imagine this with me. If just the hem of his garment filled the temple, then how big is that throne? 
And if just the hem of his garment fills the temple, then how big is that Jesus who occupies that throne? Infinitely bigger than we could ever imagine. Jesus is so infinite that simply the hem of his garment is more than we can take in. Jesus is so vast that just the fringe of his robe is more than enough. In fact, we're told about a woman in the Gospel of Mark that understood this very well. In Mark chapter 5, we read this. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports of Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his what? His garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And Jesus perceived in him that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about to the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said, I love this. His his disciples are so practical. You see this whole crowd pressing against you and you say, who touched me? Like, what is the deal here? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, now I want you to hear these words, came in fear and in trembling, she's shaking, and fell down before him, that's a a motion of worship, and told him the truth, that's confession. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace and be healed of your disease. She understood like we, ought to understand that even the hem of his garment is more than we could take in. In this vision, Isaiah also sees seraphim, angels flying overhead, crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy. Now, in the Bible, any time a word is repeated, it's like the ancient version of an exclamation point. Verily, verily, or truly, truly, listen, But no other attribute is repeated three times. This is special. God is not just holy. God is not just holy, holy. The Lord is holy, holy, holy. Perfectly, completely, eternally holy. So infinitely holy. I want you to catch this. The even beautiful, glowing, sinless angels who have no reason to feel guilt, no reason to feel shame, no reason to experience embarrassment, still find it necessary to cover their face and to cover their feet because they realize how much infinitely holier God is than they are. We make the mistake of trying to figure out who we are by comparing ourselves to others. But what Isaiah 6 shows us is that we discover our true selves. We discover who we are, not through comparison with others, but through comparison with God. When we compare ourselves to others, we will have opportunity to be prideful because we will find that we're at least better than someone else in some area. 
oh, I'm better than this person, or at least I don't do this, or like the Pharisee in the temple, at least I'm not like these other people, adulterers and this tax collector, extortioners. But when we get a glimpse of the holiness of God, that, that all changes. All of our self-confidence begins to be shaken like the walls of the temple. All our pride is stripped away. All of our arrogance and visions of self-grandeur are melted. And all we can say, like Isaiah, is woe is me. I am undone. See, it's the wow of worship that then leads us to the woe is me of confession, which leads us thirdly to a vision of guilt. God's bigness makes us very aware of our smallness, but also God's holiness makes us very aware of our sinfulness. Look with me again in verse five. And I said, woe is me for I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? How did he come to this realization? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now a phrase that we have become very accustomed to in America is this, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. It's sort of a vague uh, acknowledgement of something went wrong, but totally avoiding responsibility for that and taking blame and, and really acknowledging our part in it. It's the refusal to acknowledge our guilt in a certain circumstance. And the interesting thing is that over the last 50 years, almost every president has modeled this for us in some way or another. Well, mistakes were made. <laughs> mistakes were made, AKA we messed up. But in light of God's beauty and perfection, Isaiah realizes that we don't just mess up. We don't just make mistakes, we sin. And we are defiled and unclean because of our sin. He says, I am unclean. Like Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare's famous play who helps kill King Duncan and then realizes that she's got this stain that she can't wash out and she continues to wash and continues to wash. But the more she washes, the more she realizes she has this stain. Out, damn stain, out, I say. It's a stain we can't cleanse ourselves of. Isaiah acknowledges the severity of our human condition. He says, I am unclean, which means I am unfit, I am unworthy to stand in the presence of a holy God. I do not deserve to be here. We do not simply deserve to be here. It's interesting, as you read through the book of Isaiah, he's a prophet, and as a prophet, his job was to call out against the evil and injustice of the people around him. His job was communicating judgment. And that is what he did. He did it very well. In fact, in the first five chapters, it's recorded that he says, woe to you, 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 woe to you. Eight times in the first five chapters, woe to you. 
But then something dramatic changes here when he sees God's holiness. He then says what? Woe is me. That is, that is a significant shift. And I think that that is a significant shift that needs to happen in us as 21st century Christians in America. He says, woe is me, I am lost, I am undone, I am reduced to nothing. All of my ideas of self-importance, all of my ideas of superiority have been ruined. God has ruined me for me. This is no longer an Isaiah who focuses on the sins and the failures of others. This is an Isaiah that has been confronted with the reality of his own sin and his own need for forgiveness and his own need for cleansing. And now, because of this revelation, is willing to associate, humbly associate, with the rest of sinful humanity. I dwell among, I am no better than the rest of the people that are around me. So the question for you today is, have you come to that place as well? Have you been ruined for you? This is the kind of humility that a vision of guilt creates. If you remember earlier this year, something we saw in the book of Romans is that sin levels the playing field. Remember, the apostle Paul says, all have sinned. None is righteous. All have turned away from God. And all means all. Every man, every woman, every child, despite your race, despite your religion, despite your education, despite your gender, despite your sexuality, despite your political leaning, all are guilty of sin. And therefore, all are undeserving to stand in the presence of a holy God, period. No exceptions. But, 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 no. Woe is me. Now, this word sin has become sort of a cultural taboo, hasn't it? And I already feel the discomfort in a church saying sin, let alone in stepping outside of a church and talking about sin. Sin is, is seen as sort of this like archaic, repressive form or, or, or term that's used by bigoted Christians. But the reality is that nothing has the ability to level the playing field and nothing has the ability to really cultivate equality like this humble confession. Woe is me. We don't need to shy away from sin. We need more honest conversation about it. We need more Isaiah's in the church that are willing and honest to confess it. And I want you to notice that it's only after Isaiah honestly confesses his sin, woe is me, that we see what happens next, which leads us to the final point, a vision of grace. Look with me again in verses six through seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What we see here is the God who undoes us 
is also the God who heals us. And this is what really what Advent celebrates. And, and I want you to, to pay attention to the direction, the, the movement that is going on here. It is not Isaiah moving towards holiness. It is holiness moving towards him. That is what we remember in the Advent season. Holiness has come to us. Holiness has come to cleanse us. Holiness has come to, 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 uh, to heal us. Holiness has come to reveal life and love to us, not to destroy us. This is absolutely vital for Isaiah or any one of us to approach God. This is key for anyone to stand and enjoy the presence of God. Because remember, this is a holy God. And a holy God does not overlook sin. A holy God does not excuse sin. A holy God does not minimize sin in order to sneak us in. He does something better. A holy God provides atonement for sin. A holy God makes amends himself. It says that the angel of the Lord takes a burning coal from the altar. What happens on an altar? Sacrifice is made. A sacrifice is made. The sacrifice of atonement is moving toward Isaiah, and it's moving toward the area of his sin. What do we see here? This is a foreshadowing of what would come hundreds of years later in the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the one who was seated on the throne willingly stepped onto the altar. The king became the lamb so that atonement could come to all who believe. You can't clean yourself, you can't heal yourself, you can't repair yourself you cannot make yourself. But the good news is that God can. And that God has already made it possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As holiness incarnate in the personal work of Jesus Christ came toward us, came toward our sin. It's not just that he removes our sin, but Jesus took our sin upon himself and in exchange gave us his holiness. The holy, holy, holiness of God comes to unholy people like you and I. And I want you to notice something here, something I've never noticed. I've read this passage a ton. But it says that the coal is carried by the angel and it's presumably this red hot coal because even a fierce seraphim angel, this is not a cute, cuddly angel that you see depicted in, in like Renaissance art. This is a warrior angel. He says, no, no, that thing's too hot, and takes the tongs. He's like, I'm not touching that. Takes the tongs. So hot, so fierce, so dangerous, that even the seraphim has to like touch it with the tongs. And it moves toward his mouth. The heat of the holiness of God is coming toward the place of his guilt and shame. But not to destroy him, 
but to heal him. This is a vision of grace, but this is not a vision of cheap grace. This is not a vision of easy, pain-free grace. This is a vision of costly grace, and at times, painful and daring grace. In C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a character named Eustace, and he's a very difficult and contentious person that is unwilling to see the magic of Narnia and is like determined to ruin it for everyone else. And he falls asleep on this like mound of enchanted gold and as he's sleeping he has quote greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart. And when he wakes up he realizes that he has embodied the darkness within. He has actually become the dragon within. And so Eustace is desperately trying to peel away the dragon scales layer after layer after layer after layer and he finds that he is no less a dragon than when he began. No matter how much he tries to change, no matter how much he tries to repair himself, he cannot change himself. And so then the lion, Aslan, who is meant to represent Jesus, says, you're gonna have to let me do that for you. I'm gonna have to do that for you. And as Eustace is retelling the story, he says, I was very afraid of his claws. This is a fierce line. He says, I could tell you I was very afraid, but I was pretty desperate at this point. So I just lay flat on my back, and I let him do it. And he said the very first tear was so deep, so deep, that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it was worse than anything I've ever felt. But he says, then I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. The lion had had succeeded at changing me. I was healed. This is not a call, this Advent is not a call to make yourself anything other than desperate and open. The call of this Advent is to behold, to bravely look, to bravely look beyond the point of discomfort. Perhaps what you will discover this Advent is that your vision of Jesus has simply just been too small. This is a Jesus who shakes us to our core. This is a Jesus that deserves our resounding praise. This is a Jesus who calls us to repent of our sin. This is a Jesus who graciously moves toward the painful places of shame and guilt to heal and transform us. Behold him, look at him. I wanna call you this Advent, stay fixated on him, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 